Good afternoon and welcome to Breaking Free, Creating Transformative Changes in Policing for Minneapolis. This conversation is part of the What's Next series of roundtables hosted by the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Minnesota. My name is Megan Mell and I'm the Director of Alumni Experiences and College Events at the College of Liberal Arts. To begin, I first want to acknowledge that the University of Minnesota Twin Cities is built within the traditional homelands of the Dakota people. It is important to acknowledge the peoples on whose land we live, learn, and work as we seek to improve and strengthen our relations with our tribal nations. We also acknowledge that words are not enough. We must ensure that our institution provides support, resources, and programs that increase access to all aspects of higher education for our American Indian students, staff, faculty, and community members. This afternoon's conversation is part of a series of roundtables to address the important question of what's next for us to eliminate institutional and systemic racism in society. The series seeks to engage experts from the College of Liberal Arts, as well as throughout our community. Our moderator for this afternoon is Professor Michelle Phelps, who is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology in the College of Liberal Arts here at the University of Minnesota. Her research is in the sociology of punishment, focusing in particular on the punitive turn in the US. Her primary lines of ongoing research are on mass probation, criminal justice transformation, and policing. Together with Philip Goodman from the University of Toronto and Joshua Page from the University of Minnesota, Professor Phelps is the author of Breaking the Pendulum, The Long Struggle Over Criminal Justice, which traces the history of US criminal justice reforms from the birth of the penitentiary to contemporary struggles to end mass incarceration. Professor Phelps is currently affiliated with the Minnesota Population Center, Robina Institute of Criminal Law and Criminal Justice, the University of Minnesota Law School, and the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Professor Phelps, thank you for joining us. Terrific, thank you so much to uh, Megan and the College of Liberal Arts for sponsoring this series. Uh, thank you to our wonderful panelists who I will uh, introduce in a moment. And thank you to all of you who are attending at home. Uh, we really um, appreciate your interest in the, the webinar and hope we can share some uh, useful information and, and a conversation in the roundtable today. So I'm, uh, it's my privilege to introduce this group of four incredible panelists. I'm mostly gonna let folks introduce themselves because I want the audience to get a sense of the speakers and their work in this arena. Um, but briefly, I will introduce folks. We have first Jamel Lundy. Uh, he is the committee administrator for the Public Safety and Criminal Justice Reform Committee at the Minnesota House. Uh, second, we'll have Marquita Stevens. She is the Director of Education Programs and Policy at Urban League Twin Cities. Third, we'll hear from Aluchi Omioga, who is the co-founder of Black Visions Collective. Uh, and last and certainly not least, we will have Council Vice President Andrea Jenkins from the Minneapolis City Council. So Jamel, if you could spend just a couple of minutes introducing yourself uh, and telling the audience a little bit about your work in this area, uh, that would be terrific. Sorry, let me get this uh, unmuted very quickly. Um, hello, my name is Jamal Lundy. As you just heard, I'm the committee administrator for the Public Safety and Criminal Justice Reform Committee. Um, I'll try to keep my um, my statements kind of within. Um, and I also, I'm sorry, I also work with the NAACP on the Criminal Justice Reform Committee with Dr. Raj. I'll try to keep my statements kind of within the general gist of um, what members have expressed publicly and with the direction my chair is looking ahead in the upcoming session. Um, uh, the work that um, we, uh, the work that um, the state legislature took on, specifically myself and Chair Mariani, who's the chair of the Public Safety and Criminal Justice Reform Committee, involved looking uh, at the broader systemic, and I would also say kind of the state level response to the um, death of George Floyd, but also the ongoing um, police brutality um, that we've seen throughout not only the state, but the nation, not only the nation, kind of the world. Um, and we've, um, in our work, um, reached out to a whole series of folks. Obviously, we are continuous communication with the administration. We had to respond to kind of the uprisings that uh, followed the death of, uh, sorry, the killing of George Floyd. And the um, we also reached out to other academics and professionals to try to craft, and sorry, and community leaders as well, try to craft uh, a set of uh, bills that uh, we thought could, um, the criteria that we would, what we were looking for is a um, set of bills that work together to prevent um, an incident like this from ever occurring again. Um, and 
Uh, for that reason, um, we put together a package that we call the uh, Minnesota Police Accountability Act. Uh, I won't go through the full act, but essentially it had three different components, three different packages of bills. Um, uh, one did the Reclaiming Community Oversight Act, um, which really looked at a regulatory compliance and civil litigation. Uh, there is the um, the Reforming Accountability Act, which really looked at criminal accountability. And lastly, the uh, Reimagining Public Safety Act, which kind of looked at restructuring larger policy uh, infrastructure of policing and of looking at the kind of the governance model of policing um, generally. Um, and I think those, those big acts containing several bills um, all looked at the problem systemically. And I, I'd love to kind of discuss it further as we get into the questions. So. Terrific, thank you very much. I'll turn it over to Marquita then. Good afternoon, everyone, and glad you were here. I'm Marquita Stevens, the Director of Education, Programming, and Policy at the Urban League Twin Cities. I, my remarks primarily will center around the research that we did in conjunction with the NAACP on a project um, last year funded by the Leadership Conference. And we looked at the um, attitudes and perspectives of African-Americans primarily in Minneapolis about the Minneapolis police. And we pinned that and I'll share some of those results with you. My own experience also stems from the role as a facilitator in the conversations between the citizenry of Roseville and the police and city departments um, right after the Philando Castile um, murder a few years ago. And that was informed in part by a briefing that I received at in Ferguson after the Michael Brown killing as well. So that's the lens through which I'll be speaking today. Terrific, thank you. Aluchi? Hey y'all, my name is Aluchi. I use any pronouns. Um, I think it is important to say that I'm black, I'm queer, I'm trans, um, because I am everyone who has come before me. Um, I'm a community organizer. I think it's important when we're talking about conversations around policing and systems change that uh, we bring it to uh, a non-academic level. Um, um, and I'm bringing my community with me as far as the conversations that I'm gonna talk about. I've been organizing um, for eight years since the, uh, the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement. I really got activated um, in what was going on in Minneapolis at that time. Um, I also uh, was one of the folks who were integral into the fourth precinct shutdown in 2015 after the murder of Jamar Clark, um, and also the occupation of the governor's mansion when Philando Castile uh, was killed. Um, I'm one of the co-founders of Black Visions, um, which is an organization that's centered and led by Black, queer, and trans Minnesotans, um, mainly youth, um, towards the liberation of our people. Um, yeah, and I totally look better than I do in my um, photo that everyone loves to use. So just so y'all know, I am a better looking person than in that picture. And I'll pass it on to the next person. Okay, and with that, if I can hand the mic over to Council Vice President Jenkins. Thank you so much, Michelle. And, and thank you for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. Um, and I just gotta state that um, I think that photo of you, Oluji, is hot. In fact, I was uh, thinking that before you said that, I'm like, wow, I love the jacket. I like the little hair thing that's kind of sticking out on the side. But um, so just wanted to, to claim that. Um, Andrea Jenkins, Minneapolis City uh, Council member, vice president of the Minneapolis City Council. I use she, her, and her pronouns. I too am black, trans, queer, and very proud. Um, and so bringing my ancestors to this conversation because they dreamed that we would be in this, um, in, in these roles that we occupy in society now um, and shaping the way 
the ways and um, the, the structures that can support uh, Black liberation. And so, um, you know, right now we are in the midst of a very uh, intense um, budget conversation around how we um, reimagine and implement um, reimagined public safety strategies. But I wanna emphasize that, um, you know, we, we can shift how public safety works in our culture and society, but we also have to shift all the other institutions around how we function in our culture and society. We have to root out the, the racism that is inherent at the state legislature. We have to root out the uh, racism that is inherent in the philanthropic um, uh, systems that, that support the nonprofit industrial complex. We have to root out the, the racism and the foundations of slavery that underpin institutions like the University of Minnesota and almost every single academic uh, institution in our nation. And so, you know, it's, uh, it, it took us a long time to get to this place. Um, it, it can't take 400 years for us to, to overcome it, but it also is not gonna happen overnight. And I think, you know, historically since African-Americans landed on these shores in 1619, we have been building towards a more righteous, more just society. The, the challenge is that is, 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 as we have been working towards that, Black liberation, there has been um, uh, obstacles and opposition to that work that has been significant and well-funded and very pernicious uh, in its quest to keep uh, black and brown communities oppressed. Well, thank you so much everybody for those powerful introductions and for joining us today. So uh, I'd like to start with a, a series of questions directed towards each panelist uh, and then transition into a, a broader discussion with the group. And so Aluchi, I thought I might direct the, the first conversation to you. Um, you know, as Jamel mentioned in his conversation, in his introduction, you know, we're here obviously because of the police killing of George Floyd and the um, massive mobilization of community members over the summer and the efforts to reimagine or transform or abolish or defund policing in Minneapolis. And so I thought we might start sort of grounded in that um, community mobilization, which Black Visions has been um, such a key part of this summer. And of course, going back many um, many years since the start of the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the, the start of um, all of these groups and coalitions around transforming public safety in Minneapolis that have emerged in the last couple of years. And so I thought uh, what might make sense to sort of ground our conversation in the most recent development of um, activist demands is around the development of the people's budget. And so I wondered if you might talk a bit about where that idea came from uh, and what it's calling for. Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so our, the people's budget was really our way of trying to do participatory budgeting um, in a six week time period, which was very hard to do, right? Um, so it's really around like, how are we as the constituents of Minneapolis coming together to talk about what are the budgetary priorities for our city, right? Um, so the people's budget came together with um, about four different listening sessions with over a hundred different individuals and organizations that um, live in, work in, play in Minneapolis to really accumulate and say, let's vision um, a Minneapolis in which we have the autonomy of deciding where our money goes, right? Um, and where our money goes where it's not killing us. Um, so what are some alternatives that we want to invest in? Um, what are some programs? What is the art that is necessary for us to not just survive, but thrive? For us to be able to put health first, to be able to fund 
um, notable alternatives um, that actually work, right? Uh, because we know that if we if we actually fund prevention, then we don't have to re fund response. And we also know that the police or the Minneapolis Police Department doesn't actually prevent anything. They don't prevent anything, right? Um, so how are we prevent? How are we funding prevention and not um, response? Um, and then the third thing is like, how are we actually understanding that all of these issues that we're having can stem from anti-Black racism, can stem from capitalism, right? Can stem from patriarchy. And how are we actually um, utilizing and funding economic solutions as well? We are in the middle of a pandemic in which millions of Americans are below the poverty line. They have been before and now they are. Uh, we have houseless people, we have encampments all over Minneapolis. Um, so when we take a look and we say, wow, instead of funding housing, we're going to fund what we like to say is public safety, but what we know isn't public safety, that's, that's, that's cognitive dis dissonance, right? That is not, that is not actually equitable. Um, so what the people's budget was, is was our way of trying to do participatory budgeting on a smaller scale and say, hey, this is actually what the people of Minneapolis want. Um, and this is actually what's going to, what's going to get us to uh, thrive and not just survive in, in our society now. Terrific, thanks. And I really appreciate how concise you are. <laughs> that was impressive. Um, terrific. So I was going to turn the mic next to Marquita. And, uh, you know, I had originally thought about this question uh, in terms of what's been happening in among North Minneapolis residents over the last couple of months. So there's been some pushback in North Minneapolis um, to the de declaration from the um, Powderhorn Park event to end the, the MPD, including a lawsuit from um, eight citizens who says that the city is not protecting them adequately. And so I was going to ask, what is your sense from those conversations um, that you've been having this summer with community about Northsiders priorities for police reform and policing transformation? And I guess I'll open that up a bit to say, um, you know, you had also done this earlier research with NAACP. And so if you want to sort of start there and then kind of walk us through forward, that would be terrific. Marquita, you're still muted. Thank you for the question. I have to say though, that as I think about the question, I have to, my mind centers on the fact that not much has changed in terms of the residents' um, perspectives about policing. The same things that were troublesome, you know, in 2019 are troublesome in 2020, which are troublesome in 2010, which were troublesome in 1974. I mean, it, it, it's the events of the day have not done much to advance um, the perspectives about policing um, on the part of African-Americans. Our research says that they're um, one of the things that is claims the attention in terms of reform is better relationships between police and the community. That hasn't changed. You know, people want better relationships with the police within the community. The other, items that are concerned to them is that police receive adequate training and address racial bias. That hasn't changed. Um, people still believe that racial bias within the police force exists and it's directed at them. That hasn't changed. Um, they think about the lack of accountability and transparency on the part of policing and are, are awaiting the progress of and watching the progress of the um, case against the officers charged in the Floyd murder um, with bated breath, as they say. Um, so th there's nothing much that has changed in terms of the events. It's just another event. And <clears throat> interestingly enough though, I will add that one of the things that they were concerned about, which is a reflection of the um, reality that they see this occurring in, and that is mental health services, not only for the public at large that needs them, those, those individuals among our citizenry that need that, but for the police as well. There was some recognition on the part of the people who participated in the survey and the focus groups that policing is a difficult job and that it is um, stressful and that, um, dealing with these um, very um, uh, 
life-threatening in some instances, situations on a regular basis uh, can create uh, mental health issues for the police as well. And their concern, the concern is as to the extent to which those issues are attended to on the part of the police department. For if it is in fact not attended to on a regular basis, weekly or what have you, then that frustration is might is maybe um, the source of their inability to have good relationships with the community at large. Um, they bring that unresolved trauma that they have to the situations that they're facing as well. So there was a recognition, and I think that is the only new thing that we found out of the um, conversations with people that there is a recognition of that fact. Nonetheless, it doesn't um, let them off the hook, that it is something that they have to uh, attend to within their own ranks, within their own structures, um, such that they are fit to serve the community that they have sworn to protect. Terrific, thank you very much. So I wanted to, to turn next to um, Council Vice President and Andrea Jenkins and um, to sort of have you respond to, you know, as we've been talking about already in this conversation, I think, and as we heard a lot last night at the hearing, the community has really different ideas about the path forward with policing, right? And there's, there's calls for defunding the police, there's calls for um, the safety for all budget plan to try and transfer some of the funding from MPD to alternative first responders. There's also a call to try and create mobile mental health crisis units. Um, and I just wonder if you could give us kind of your thoughts on um, where you're at in processing all this. You've been so at the, the center of these conversations in some ways because of the, the ward that you represent. Um, and I just wondered sort of if you could speak a little bit on sort of where you're sitting now in terms of how you think about the priorities of what comes next. Great question. And um, really, um, really just honored to, to be in this, in this space and, and listen to my co-panelists as they describe their realities. Um, and, um, you know, I took notes on last night's hearing. I have literally about 10 pages um, the, the, it was interesting. I mean, you know, in some ways we think it's divided, but in many ways people were all asking for the same things. Um, how, how, do, how do we create um, uh, public safety in, in, a, in a new, um, reimagine way that that keeps everybody safe. Um, but I think the divisiveness is reflected in the in the fact that people have differing ideas on how we get there. Um, I, I was really kind of struck by the um, comments from um, Marquita, and actually not struck in any way at all because I am black. <laughs> I, you know, I, I live and breathe in black community space and talk to black people on a very regular basis. Um, and, but I was, I was just surprised by, you know, some of the remarks in that people were, didn't say, we don't want police. <laughs> they said, we want police to be accountable. We want police to be relatable. We want police to understand that they play a role in our community, just like the bus drivers, just like the butcher shop, just like the post office, just like the social services that people rely on. They play a role in our community. I think the challenge is that the police department in Minneapolis and every place else in this country 
I mean, Minneapolis is not an aberration. The, the police are militaristic and uh, in every community in, in this country. Um, you know, sans white communities where it does appear that people, that the police are very capable of being an integral community member and part of those communities. It, it, it is not evident that they have that same level of relationship and um, commitment to being in community in black spaces and black communities. And so I, I was just really, really struck by that, but I know that to be true. You know, I, I talked to my mom, I talked to my aunts, I talked to my cousins, I talked to my, um, my friends um, who, who, who live in various communities all throughout the country um, and, and certainly here in Minneapolis and, and, and black people are saying um, for the most part, we need police. We need them to be um, accountable. We need them to be professional um, and we need them to um, be active and committed um, members of our society. Um, you know, last night's public hearing was um, emotional. It was very passionate. Um, it was very it was very well organized. I mean, certainly we heard from a number of people from um, supporting the the police. Um, the people's budget, um, and then subsequently um, the safety for all proposal that has been um, submitted and forwarded by um, council members Cunningham, um, Bender, and Fletcher, um, and 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 there was a um, considerable amount for supporting the, the mayor's budget. Um, I fall somewhere in between that space and uh, really want to and will be um, supporting the safety for all plan that you know everybody I believe um, wants to see a mental health response, a co-response, co-responder um, scenario that addresses and um, responds to, to mental health um, crises um, to, to really shift some of the uh, professionals from the Minneapolis Police Department to other agencies within the, the city, um, including the Office of Violence Prevention in, in funding that support. And, um, and I will say that we have been on this path. I mean, this is not um, new. It certainly has been, um, I think, accelerated with the murder of George Floyd, which by the way, um, you kind of alluded to uh, Michelle, but if folks don't know, I, I am the eighth ward um, city council member and, um, the intersection of 38th and Chicago sits almost squarely in the middle of my ward. Uh, and so we were, um, we were and are still deeply impacted by the murder of, of George Floyd. And we're reminded of it every day because we have a, um, a quote, um, autonomous zone that is disrupting the, the, the flow and the movement of people through um, out the ward and, and, and impacting the, the city, um, quite frankly. Um, so deeply, deeply challenged by these issues. You know, I, I will state that I am an abolitionist. I believe that we must rid our society of prisons. Um, but when I think about how that manifests itself, I know that there are some people, and this has been true throughout the history of uh, human society, 
that are not able to fully participate in, in societal life for a variety of, of factors and reasons. And we have to help those people to become those kinds of uh, contributing members to society. Um, but sometimes people have to be pulled out of society to have that happen. And so what if prisons became colleges? And right now they are colleges. They are colleges on how to become a better criminal. Um, but, you know, there have been examples throughout the world, um, and particularly in, in, um, in Germany, in Russia, where, you know, prisons are um, compounds that people can walk about freely, can go to school, can um, have jobs that pay real wages, um, not slave labor so that they can continue to support their families and be connected to their families. Um, and they don't, they don't call them prisons. That is where we need to be moving to in our society. Um, and the same with abolishing the police. We need to be supporting structures that will um, make crime and um, um, violence less of a reality in our communities. However, that work is gonna take time and we still will need to uh, subsequently remove people from society that can't um, abide by those rules. If we, if we wanna have a society that is governed by laws and rules, then somebody has to enforce those laws. Otherwise, we are just um, living in, in, um, in quote, I guess, anarchy. Uh, people are, um, we, we need people to be a part of this social contract that says we are going to respect and, um, and love each other, which is a word that, you know, I just struggled to say. Um, and, and that is um, at the core, I think, of, of how we are going to move forward. But, you know, I, I, I heard a lot last night, and, and even this morning, Oluji said, police don't, they only respond to, to crime. Yes but people need that response. If I have, if somebody gets murdered, I, I need somebody to go and investigate and hold the people who murdered my family member accountable. Police do that. Um, police do, I, I think personally, um, prevent crimes. When, you know, uh, one example was last night that I will share again today. When you're driving down the freeway and you see the state trooper, you slow down. You don't drive 95 miles an hour um, past the state trooper. You, so, so police do deter crime. Is it, a, is it enough of the deterrence? Um, clearly not. Um, you know, which that's the argument of the, the um, um, I'm sorry, my brain, I'm so overtired, you guys, but the death penalty is supposed to be a deterrent, right? But it, it really is, um, as I think I've heard either last night or this morning, some maybe, Michelle, you said it, uh, violence begets violence. I am adamantly opposed to the death penalty. I don't think the state has a right to, to kill anyone, whether it's judiciously or extrajudiciously, and those who do it should be completely held accountable. But we have to be a nation of laws and we have to enforce those laws. You know, people say crime is only created because of um, 
um, poverty. I, I beg to differ. We have a White House full of criminals and those people are rich as hell and they are breaking the laws and creating violence, economic violence, uh, putting kids in cages every single day. That's crime and those people are not poor or need to have activities for their kids. People create crime. It, 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 it's a reality and I'm not sure how we get how we change that, but um, okay, that's enough. Usa. I just want to oh, say something. I, I don't know that. if I answered your question, but that's well, what I'm feeling right now. Aluchi, I could tell throughout that you're jumping to Diane, but we actually, we have one more question for Jamal and then another okay. question that gets exactly to this issue of like, how else do we support community members and how do we think about alternative responses to preventing harm? And so is it all right if I put you just on pause? It's fine. Loki, I have ADHD. All. I will probably forget <laughs> what I was going to say, but it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Okay. I promise you get to be the first responder to that next question. <laughs> So Jamel, I wanted to give you a chance to jump into the conversation. And you know, the reason we invited you onto the panel was Minneapolis, of course, doesn't exist in a vacuum. Minneapolis is embedded in a state context and of course in a, a national uh, context as well. And I think some of the conversation that gets missed around the question of transforming policing is how much cities can actually accomplish, right? And how they're constrained by both state and federal policy and potentially, um, right, with the right kinds of leaders enabled by state policy and enabled by federal policy. And so I just wanted to give you a minute to talk a little bit about how you see the role of um, state policy setting what cities like Minneapolis can do and what you think should happen at the, the state level to sort of push this issue forward. All right. Um, so um, I wrote a few notes on uh, kind of the approach the legislature took and why it took that approach. Um, I do think um, the state plays a very important role as obviously we license um, all local police offices and then we create uh, rules and obviously statute that govern the behavior of police officers and re actually restrain them in many instances, um, but also empower them in many instances um, to do both negative and positive things. Um, and so um, a part of our legislative response to the death of George Floyd um, actually started well before the death of George Floyd. Um, one of the issues Chair Mariani and I identified when we were originally, when the chair was first issued this committee assignment and I was brought on as committee administrator was police brutality. And it was a, a, actually a, uh, an issue area where we had very little help. <laughs> and so we spent uh, the better part of a year and a half before George Floyd occurred. And Michelle, you're one of the people we met with and kind of exploring what the academic literature said. We reviewed all the reports put forth by the state of Minnesota and other academic institutions. We looked at the NAACP report issued with the um, help of the, um, um, the Urban League. We also looked at uh, Michelle Gross, the Community United Against Police Brutality put forth a report. Uh, we looked at the old governor report following Philando Castile. We reviewed, uh, upon your advice, Michelle, kind of the conflicting uh, reports put forth by the different um, subsection committees from that governor's uh, task force. And what we found was essentially, um, especially after um, reviewing a lot of the, um, uh, after George Floyd occurred is, we found that Minneapolis had a lot of the proposals in place um, that a lot of folks were suggesting. So they had the chokehold ban, the duty to intervene, there were a lot of policy proposals that Minneapolis, and on a policy level that uh, is supposed to be enforced by the chief law enforcement officer is actually compared to many of the other smaller localities kind of ahead of the curve. And yet because of this, um, um, for many reasons, <laughs> uh, we still had negative outcomes. And so what we at the state level recognize that it is um, part of this came out of a lot of our discussions around these bills, where that is a the state's role is to ensure that every citizen's human rights are always preserved. And that is the relationship, proper relationship it should have when it comes to police accountability is looking to ensure that, yes, there are a lot of 
discipline matters and labor matters that are uh, of the local purview. But when it comes to human rights, uh, it is a state responsibility and it's technically everyone's responsibility to ensure everyone's human rights are protected. And so um, for that reason, when it came time to um, interface with the Senate, which is a GOP controlled entity, we felt the emphasis from the Senate on what, what I kind of think of as CLEO enforcement and CLEO's a, a um, um, a acronym for chief law enforcement officer. Um, it, they had a series of bills, I believe five bills that were basically all relied on the chief being told to do certain things. So the chief of police would be told no more chokeholds. You now have a model policy put into place that you must ensure that folks don't have a chokehold. They make sure that they report any law enforcement malfeasance. So there's a duty to intervene. And we found that none of these had state teeth. It had no teeth where the state, if they see um, somebody violating this model policy, that the state would be able to step in and um, issue um, some type of action on an individual law enforcement's license. And without that um, ability to protect human rights through licensure, and you're just using policy and union um, arbitration to enforce discipline, that there is a, a, a different level of accountability that comes from um, an independent entity with authority. And so what we endeavor to do is to create, uh, if you're looking to solve a systemic problems, oftentimes you create an institution or a system to combat that systemic problem. And the issue we're looking at here is um, systemic state violence and particularly systemic racism. And what we were looking to do is create systems within the existing institutions or infrastructures. We're not reinventing the wheel. Um, but a part of that is for political reasons, because it's more difficult to build a new institution than to augment an existing one. Um, you, you encounter more resistance. And it's actually more expensive, too, on top of it. Um, for, for those reasons, what we endeavored to do was look for different ways, for instance, um, um, that I can go through quickly. Um, there are three acts, and I'll highlight three really quick bills within each one. So the Reclaiming Community Oversight Act, there are several bills in them. Three of the uh, big ones are uh, repealing the uh, retroactively repealing the statutes of limitations um, that allows for individuals who are victims of police in order to sue folks um, in, in, the, in the future um, or to sue folks um, who've harmed them in the past. So currently there's a statute of limitations um, and the, clock, the um, police can run out that clock because it can't begin to tick until the investigation is done. They uniquely have power over the investigation. Um, secondly is, um, and I'll wrap this up very quickly, a law enforcement oversight council reform. What we've noticed is local law enforcement oversight, uh, particularly even if you have a really great commissioner who's in charge of it, um, those, those citizen oversight councils don't are legislatively prohibited from doing investigations, from providing um, um, being authorized to provide discipline um, recommendations themselves and from having subpoena power to ensure that they have access to all the records. Um, and a lot of that is, most of that is brought forth by statutes. Um, and then um, lastly, uh, was data collection regulatory reform. Um, we passed portions of this, but essentially the state of Minnesota, it, the public doesn't have a dashboard to look through individual police um, I'm sorry, um, police department's discipline records. We have no way to compare apples to apples. We only have um, a sheet of paper <laughs> that's statutorily um, mandated <laughs> every year that each department issues to the post board. And up until this year, the, um, the, administrator, the post board didn't publicly even publish that one sheet of paper. And so um, it's... Um, there's a number of systemic issues when it comes to accountability that the state put in place. Um, and then lastly, I'm just going to very quickly run through, and I, I don't want to spend time with actual legislation. I do want to talk about it on a more higher level. Um, the kind of the state policies uh, limits that kind of restrain the ability of locals to act. And then some of the, the changes that are coming in state policy that hopefully gives us the ability to start moving there. And so I'll run through it very quickly. I wrote it down in a note. Um, we have disempowered local community oversight boards. Um, that is by statutes. We have um, atrophied law enforcement innovation. There is no state level uh, investment. There is no one out there looking to find a disruptive way of hunting down stolen items. There is no new programs for looking at 
um, you know, um, there isn't at a state level a high level of investment in innovative law enforcement techniques that could provide um, different types of crime prevention that doesn't necessarily um, flow from police. Um, there is a uh, there was a captured regulatory body. The um, post board hasn't issued a single police accountability regulation in, it, in its entire history that was not brought on by a state legislature. <laughs> like the state legislature had to tell them to do anything involving. That's not the way a regulatory board should function. It should look for different ways to rein in what they're tracking and seeing as um, over, oversteps, especially if you have kind of a global uprising that comes. Um, and then um, what else? Um, Complaint record statutes prevents sharing complaint records uh, freely. The discipline process statute um, gave gives even you know now it's too much power to arbitrators and local folks when it comes to violations of human rights. Um, there's a police versus public safety subsidy. So we subsidize police work in a way that we really don't subsidize public safety work. We don't look at the holistically what creates a community safe. For instance, like those mental health response teams, community violence interrupters, um, you know, domestic violence shelters. And we don't look to systemically fund those in the way that we give LGA out and help out uh, local law enforcement. Then lastly, the cost of reform, which is the dirty, the dirty thing folks don't like to talk about, is it costs money to do things like decriminalize, even CBD. It's costing over a million dollars to our budget to make something not enforced by law enforcement. Um, and eliminate, un, uh, you know, largely unpaid fines and fees. And a lot of these re uh, efforts that would eventually reduce the prison population require an upfront investment, which makes it expensive and difficult to do when you have to settle a state budget. So and this is my last point is uh, three quick three quick solutions or bright spots to overcome some of these systemic barriers. Um, regulatory reawakening is helping. At the post board, the governor has appointed folks who are uh, finally been seated a majority of governor's appointees who are um, reform-minded folks. And obviously the post board still propagated by largely law enforcement. However, uh, at least they're law enforcement with an uh, open um, open mind to reform efforts. Um, and there's a lot more community engagement in the post board. Some of the appointments are, for instance, my friend, Dr. Raj, who now sits on the post board, who will uh, hopefully be a new voice there to help um, enliven this atrophied regulatory body. Um, statutory reform, uh, creating a citizens council and post board. So current now we have a a body within the post board dominated by citizens, which um, individuals like, for instance, cities like Minneapolis can bring legislation to, and have that body voted to the final post board, the actual board members, and they have to vote it up or down. So it's not just a citizens council that has only the power to issue reports. They can put something on the agenda of the post board proper and make them vote on something that could have a lot of effects on local Minneapolis. And lastly, um, legislative uh, prioritization. Uh, that's a new uh, new development. Um, when, I, when we first started working on police brutality, we couldn't get anyone to listen. We couldn't get, you know, our bills were like the one bill every year we knew we were going to get beat up on were the police brutality bill. Cops would come in and laugh us out. I know, Michelle, you probably followed some of our work. So you know that we weren't taken very seriously. Uh, people would literally say, we're like, hey, there's a crisis of confidence in law enforcement. And they would say, no one believes that. No one doubts law enforcement. And then we had to go and meet with the same folks after a global uprising around the lack of confidence in law enforcement. And so um, now that folks have seen that and reawakened that, the, the leadership, at least um, the governor's office and the Minnesota House, have highly prioritized this issue. And even the Senate, um, I'm somewhat hopeful that uh, that the majority leader, Gazelka, has some um, political impetus to at least appear as though he would like to work on this issue. So um, <laughs> I know, right? I'm seeing a lot of folks who are doubting it. I'm hopeful that the appearance of not looking like you could care less about the plight of people of color is a, is a enough of a impetus for him to at least act on something. But um, I'm holding my breath. They could care less that we think they <laughs> care less. And Councilwoman, uh, Vice President Councilwoman Jenkins, I firmly do not, would not disagree with that assessment, but I'm hopeful. I was going to say the, the record is not great on that one, but, but we can all, we can all hold our breath. Well, thank you very much, Jamal. I appreciate it. That was terrific.
So I, you, I'm conscious that we're um, running uh, a bit late on time. I, what I was going to transition next to was a question about, you know, this concern about community members and crime and victimization has obviously dominated the front page of uh, local newspapers over the last couple of weeks. And I think that conversation often gets reduced into this conversation of like, do we have enough police or do we have not enough police for the problem of crime? And less about, you know, how is the pandemic increasing economic instability that prompts crime? How is is the closure of schools and community centers and all kinds of opportunities for youth creating crime? How are empty businesses and empty streets creating opportunities for victimization? And so I wanted to give everybody a chance to kind of weigh in on sort of public safety beyond policing, but we're a little short on time. So I think what we'll do instead is I'll turn the floor to Aluchi, who I promised to come back to. I will honor that promise. And then I want to end with just a really quick one sentence from all of the panelists. You know, something that audience members said in a lot of their comments to the panel was, what can I do? And so if you just have, everybody has one sentence to conclude with, we'll start with Aluchi after your comments, um, with what you would leave panel members or audience members with, sort of what are the next steps for them and how can they get engaged in this work? Cool, yeah, so I'm gonna keep it short and sweet. Um, so first of all, um, low key, I'm actually asking for no police, um, but that's another, we, me and Andrea can talk about that in a later time. Um, so I think that there's a difference between deterrence and prevention, right? When we look at deterrence, deterrence um, inhibits the likelihood of something will happen, right? It doesn't actually prevent it from happening, which is what prevention is. So even in the example of the speeding example, right? Just because you see a, a cop car on the side of a road, it might deter you from, from making that behavior, but it doesn't actually change you from making that behavior in the future. You're just gonna be sneakier about how you make that behavior. Right. And that's the same thing with policing. So when we look at, for, for example, folks who sell drugs because it's an act of poverty. Right. Um, they don't stop selling drugs because they get caught. They just find other ways of selling drugs so they don't get caught. Right. So it's like and then also when we talk about crime. So I think something that you said that really stood out to me, Andrea, was like crime is like just because someone is in poverty doesn't mean that they'll commit crime or crime is not an act of poverty. Right. But Low key, Jeff Bezos is one of the biggest criminals in all of our existences, right? He is going to be a trillionaire in about 10 years, right? He's a, he's a criminal because he profits off of slave labor, because he fires people in the middle of a pandemic, because he does not care about the people that work for him, yet the things that he does are not called crimes. But if I, who is someone who's living under the poverty line were to go steal a TV from Walmart because I need that in order to sustain for my family, then that's automatically a crime. So when we say crime, we have to actually say what we're talking about. And when we say crime, it's like crimes profit off of capitalism. So even your example of when Donald Trump locks away children, con contributes to the prison industrial complex, that actually, um, sustains capitalism, right? So he might not be poor, but he is getting other people richer. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about crime, right? So I think those are very two important points. I think the last point um, that Jamil, you talked about was like the cost of decriminalization, right? And like even CBD is gonna cost us a million dollars to decriminalize or whatever, legitimize. But what you're, what you're not seeing is like, even when we took, take a look at the, the decriminalization of marijuana in Colorado and Washington, which were the first two states to do that, and you look at their, their, their economies years after, their economies boomed because of that. But who was making the money? It was white affluent people, not the black and brown people who were criminalized for that same drug before. So those are just a couple of things that I wanted to say before I left, so I apologize. No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Okay, so let's go. Uh, Marquita, we haven't heard from you in a while. Do you want to give the audience your last thought? Um, I guess I would anchor my philosophy in a sense of full citizenship. Black folk are looking for full citizenship. And so we're looking for laws to come out of the state that will allow us to live freely and in, in, in good intention. And that the laws governing um, policing to me need to start with a redefinition of the role of policing. We need a constitutional amendment or some such thing that will redefine policing and shift it from that which is created to protect property 
to that which is created to protect people. We haven't had a redefinition of policing since it existed, since it began. And we need to do that if we are going to expect the behavior and the actions of police to be any different. How I define you is in large part how you will behave. And so until we take that step, we're just tinkering. And um, we're at a point now where our citizenship is at risk. And so we can't afford to tinker any longer. And so I would say that the next steps would be to, in, in, in honor of the question you asked us to address at the end, what to do next, need to advocate around full citizenship for everybody, including black folk. This division will then stop or at least be addressed as a result of anchoring what we do in any way that will advance full citizenship for everybody in the community, black folks included. Terrific, thank you. Okay, Jamal, you've got 60 seconds and then I'll let Council Vice President Jenkins have the final word. Okay, for 60 seconds. Um, the big thought I like to leave folks with is thinking about, um, and I'm gonna use this uh, sexist term advisedly, which is think about policing using a guys with guns model, because it's mostly guys. But <laughs> um, where you think of, where when you think about police reform, I often advise folks to use this model to help think about a state use of force. Ask themselves, does a state agent who does a specific function need force to accomplish that function? That is, so if we, we find out meter maid, folks who write tickets for you for parking, they're a state agent who, who tries to patrol crime, but they don't need force to do that function. And there's a number of functions police carry out that they don't, they don't need force to do. So why are we overburdening an institution that should be that, you know, is best at, <laughs> we would like to think they're best at, and they're specifically charged as agents of the government who are authorized to use force. We should streamline that, which is why I like to use the phrase modernizing public safety versus abolishing the police. Both can actually, in a policy space, end up with the exact same policy, um, but they take different approaches to get there without presuming that they need to lower the amount of police or money to accomplish specific public safety aim, even though oftentimes you probably do um, or probably can. <laughs> um, and then um, the one thing folks can do, I just cannot stress enough, post board, post board, post board. I tend to think that um, we can, the same ways we've regulated <laughs> a lot of industries and a lot of actions from individual citizens and in many ways police overregulate some communities. I think police can be regulated into respecting human rights, but it takes a lot of authority, change in governance and um, um, independence in, invested within that authority in order to bring them in. Um, and that is a vision I hope, I hope to see actually carried out in the state of Minnesota. So. Oh, and sure, lastly, I'm sorry, you can write a comment in the post board for some upcoming rules that they're having. You can approach the Citizens Oversight Council on the post board, which is a group of citizens who can put police regulatory changes into a vote at the post board and actually change policy. So again, you have citizens at the post board right now, Representative Her being one of them, um, who can inform police policy and they have a whole bunch of power. So I would steer everybody who's watching that to contact someone they know, um, like uh, Dave Hutch, um, <laughs> um, who serves on the post board if they have an issue with Minneapolis, and specifically if a governance issue with Minneapolis. Thank you very much. And Madam Vice President, I'd like to give you the, the final concluding thought for our audience. Absolutely, I will try to keep it to the request of one sentence. Um, become an anti-racist. Um, you know, check your anti-blackness. And I know I have to work on being an anti-racist every day, anti-sexist, anti-homophobic, anti-transphobic. I have to work on that every single day. And so I think everybody has to and should. And if that occurs, we can end many of the social ills that are uh, impacting and um, that are negatively impacting our communities today. 
Terrific, thank you. Well, with that, I will say thank you to our audience and turn things over to Megan who will close the program. Thank you, Professor Phelps. And thank you to all of our panelists for joining us today and bringing their perspectives to this important conversation. I hope we can invite you all back for a follow-up as I, I know there's a lot more to say on this topic. Um, to everyone watching online, thank you for taking time this afternoon to participate in the roundtable. This event has been brought to you by the College of Liberal Arts, where we are reimagining the 21st century liberal arts experience as a diverse, energetic community of students, faculty, staff, alumni, and donors. We seek to make a difference at home and throughout the world. Together, we are shattering expectations of what a liberal arts college can be. This is our final roundtable for 2020, but stay tuned as we have more in the works for after the first of the year. More information about the What's Next series can be found on the College of Liberal Arts website. I hope you will join us all again in the future. Until then, stay well and have a great afternoon.